want to reflect with you just uh, briefly, <laughs> if a bishop can do that. <clears throat> I'm going to reflect with you on a passage. And I think wherever you're coming from in your spiritual journey, whatever uh, religious affiliation you, you have, in terms of denomination or whatever, uh, I, I read this because this particular story from the Bible had some special meaning for me and uh, and I'll share and how it's been a meaningful thing for me, and hopefully it might help all of us. This is from the account of Luke. Luke wrote this a couple thousand years ago. It was at the time when there was a crucifixion scene. Jesus was crucified, and the people stayed there watching him. And the leaders, they jeered at him. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself. The soldiers mocked him too. And they approached offering vinegar. And one of the criminals hanging abused Jesus. Aren't you the Christ, they said. Then save yourself and save us as well. But the other one spoke up and rebuked him. Have you no fear of God at all, he said. You got the same sentence as he did. But in our case, we deserved it. We're paying for what we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Indeed, I promise you, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Hello, my name's Larry and I'm alcoholic. And I'm very grateful that I could be here today to share a little bit with you. And I'm also extremely grateful uh, having known Bud from back at St. Mary's days, that he limited uh, his introduction as he did, <clears throat> especially in his remarks about me. <clears throat> when I was coming in here this morning, down below I ran into some people coming off the street, and uh, they came over and said, Hi, Father. And I said, How are you? And they said, Fine, we're, we're at a meeting here, and... Uh, we, we haven't been to Mass, but you think we can be dispensed from Mass today? I said, well, if you come and listen to my talk, you can be dispensed. <laughs> if not, you go to the 12 o'clock special over at St. Uh, Olaf's Parish. This morning, uh, my mother's living with me, and uh, this morning when I was shaving, I kind of cut myself, and I had a piece of Kleenex there trying to absorb the blood. And my mother was very concerned about that, as she always would be, but it seems like it's okay now. But it reminded me of one time when a, a priest got up in the pulpit to, to preach, and he said to the people, he had a bandage on his face. And he said, this morning, while I was shaving, I was thinking about my sermon, and I cut my face. Somebody put a note in the collection basket and said, Father, next Sunday, why don't you think about your face and cut your sermon? <laughs> we, um, uh, as you know, I'm I'm one of the uh, I'm a Catholic bishop here in the Archdiocese of Saint Paul in Minneapolis, and um, go around to a lot of places. And uh, just last week, uh, we were thinking about building a new parish out here in Woodbury, and I went out to give a talk and to talk to the people. And once you know, the press showed up. And I'm always leery when the press comes and interviews. Um, 
because you never know what they're going to say, and usually it's different from what you said. But it, I, one of our bishops one time went out to dedicate a new church, and he had an evening before the morning dedication in which he invited certain people who gave significant amount of money to build this church. And uh, so he had that dinner that evening, and he noticed afterwards there was a reporter there. And he said to the reporter afterwards, he said, Gee, I, I notice you're here, you're writing an article. I wish you wouldn't quote the stories I used tonight, because I'm going to use the same stories tomorrow. The guy said, Well, that's fine. So he wrote his article, it was a good article, and the end of it was, And the bishop told a lot of stories that cannot be repeated. <laughs> One of the, one of the, um, as I'm looking at your program, uh, what a marvelous program, uh, balance seems to be a, a theme that you're into, and uh, I was thinking about that when we come to a gathering like this, we, we try to put, keep our lives in perspective, I mean every day we've got to try to do that, to keep our lives in perspective, and hopefully I might say a, a few things here this morning that help us keep, keep in perspective what we know we have to do as recovering people. And in fact, for everybody, whether recovering or not. Um, so to have some perspective. Uh, a young daughter, some time ago, wrote a letter to her parents from college, uh, talking about perspective. And she said, Dear Mom and Dad, last week the dormitory in which I live burned to the ground. The fire started in my room because my roommate and I were smoking pot. We've both been expelled from the school, but don't worry. I just moved in with this guy by the name of Bill, who's not of our religion. And though we haven't known each other very long, I know I love him, and I'll marry him before the baby's born. <laughs> and then we're going to move to Alaska and live over his father's service station, 200 miles north of Fairbanks. Your loving daughter, Kathy. And then she has a P.S. The dorm really didn't burn down. I don't smoke pot. I'm not pregnant or getting married or moving to Alaska. However, I did get a D in chemistry and just want to put it all in perspective. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that... Uh, I love to do in my, my work as, as a clergyman to visit our schools and to uh, talk with the children. And I learn a lot about families and parents because the kids tell you everything. And uh, one of the, the sisters who teaches in one of our schools had collected some answers that little children put, grade school children put on religion questions. And she gave me a couple of these, and I thought I'd share them with you. It shows you how children think. They were talking about the Old Testament. And they were talking about Noah and the ark. And so one of the questions on the test was, who was Noah's wife? One of the kids wrote, St. Joan of Arc. Another one was, Christians can get married only once. What is this called? It's called monotony. (laughs) 
Lot's wife. Who was Lot's wife in the Old Testament? Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day, but a ball of fire by night. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes. About ten years ago, ten years ago, my life changed dramatically. I was, I was ordained a priest, and I served as a priest in the Diocese of Rapid City in South Dakota. I presume there's some South Dakotans here. And, uh, I was doing very well. I liked being, um, a minister of God's people, and, uh, things we're going very well. And evidently somebody noticed this, that I seem to be an effective pastor. And so one day I get a call from the Pope. That's an awesome thing, you know. And uh, the Pope is the one who appoints bishops in the Catholic Church. And he asked me if I would be willing to accept the role of bishop and to become the bishop of Spokane, Washington. And of course I said, no, your holiness. <laughs> yeah, can you believe that? <laughs> what, what do you say to the Pope? <clears throat> well, I did. I accepted and uh, I went out to Spokane. And uh, I was there and I, evidently I was doing a pretty decent job. I, I thought I was and I think most people thought I was pretty effective as a pastor and a bishop. And then, then, then everything started to change. I I just started to do something I never did as a priest. This is a hard thing for a lot of people to understand, but it's the God's truth. When I was a priest, I never drank. I never drank. I hated the taste of black, so I just didn't. My brother priest used to laugh at me because priests obviously aren't the most sober group in the world. I mean, we, we have our groups also. But I never drank as a priest. But when I started going to some of these tough meetings and... I had to go close a school and the people picketed my house and uh, I was going through all this stuff. I started to take a drink and suddenly I realized I found something that really works. You know, I discovered this miracle drug. Well, the result of that was it became a real problem for me. Uh, and I, I had to admit in a very, very, very difficult way that I was an alcoholic. And so I was sent to St. Mary's in Minneapolis. Because one night I was driving home from somewhere and uh, I got stopped by a police officer. And I had to get out of the car and go through all that humiliating stuff. And then they took me to the jail and I'm dressed like this and they throw me in this tank with a bunch of young people and I'm wondering, what am I doing here? Of course, the next day, two days later, it was all in the newspaper. My picture was on the front page. My picture was on television that the bishop had been stopped for drunken driving. So you can imagine how humbling and how humiliating that was, embarrassing. It had to be the worst time in my life. And I really didn't know what I was going to do. And, and as I look back now, I can look back with great gratitude. And as, I, as I'll mention, it, it, it was a great blessing in many ways, but not at that time. Not at that time. 
So I came, I came to St. Mary's. I came to St. Mary's and I was here for the usual time, did what I had to do. And then I went back to Spokane. And uh, the first thing I did when I went back there, I had to go to a commencement of Gonzaga University. I was there presiding at the commencement, and we were walking into this big church, St. Aloysius Gonzaga Church on the campus. And all the graduates and faculty were walking, and there's a gentleman on campus who's, on every campus there's one of these persons, kind of flits around, and he's always there. Everybody knew him. So when he saw me across the campus, he hollered out and said, Bishop, I got the same problem you got. My anonymity was gone from the, from the very beginning. But I, I started to live my life of sobriety. And for a while, I did fine going to my meetings. But then I thought, I know how to drink now. I know, you've heard this before. <laughs> I, I know. I can do this. A little wine out of the sacristy is not going to hurt anybody, you know, on my way home. Well, the problem was I started over again. I had to come back. And uh, I came back and I spent time at St. Mary's and I, then I went to a halfway house. I lived in a halfway house in St. Paul for four months. And then it was at that time that I made the decision that I would not go back to Spokane. And so I asked the, the Pope if I could stay in this area. And uh, he gave me permission to do that. So this was about ten, nine, ten years ago now. And so then I, I want to read a little bit of what I wrote back to the people of Spokane, telling them that I was not coming back there, and especially to my brother priests. And I said to them, I would like to take this opportunity in the Lenten season to share with you some of the pain and grace that have marked my life in recent months as I waged a personal battle against the disease of alcoholism. This is not an easy letter for me to write. It's hard to open my heart and my life and speak of my innermost feelings. It's especially difficult for me to write about the pain with which this illness filled my life, a sudden insidious suffering that became a deepening darkness. Nevertheless, it's my hope that if I speak forth rightly to you and from the heart, of what I've learned in recovery about myself, my faith, and God. Perhaps some good can come from it. I've learned that when bad things happen to us in life, it's pointless to ask, why has this happened to me? The critical question is, how do I respond? And if one is a person of faith, one responds by turning to the source of strength that far exceeds one's own limited resources, a higher power. And without this reservoir of strength, to draw on, I do not know what I would have done. As it is, these months have been for me a time of recovery and grace. It is both humbling and moving for a bishop to discover for himself what other people who are struggling, especially the poor, outcasts, many others can teach him about God. Perhaps the hardest task of all for me in these months of recovery has to be to get in touch once again with the clear image of God in myself. I've always felt that people tend to put a bishop on a pedestal, doctors, priests. 
in that their expectations of him are so high. And it's very easy for a bishop to really begin to share these expectations of himself. These exalted expectations made my own illness all the more difficult for me. I've had to really struggle to work through the shame that accompanies alcoholism in order to see that being a bishop does not exempt one from being human, frail, broken, and need of redemption like everyone else. And I've learned that in a very real way, people are God's language. The compassion, understanding, and support that others show us are really only a reflection of God's compassion. <laughs> so I sent that letter. And then as my life started to move on here, <clears throat> I moved to live at the Basilica of St. Mary. Some of you may have seen this great church over here on Hennepin Avenue. And I went there just to live and to be a volunteer. Nobody knew I was a priest or a bishop or anything. I went there as a volunteer to just take some time. And I was known there as Larry. And then one day, we decided I would start to minister publicly, celebrate the liturgy publicly. So I never forget the first Sunday when I said Mass in the Basilica. When I came down, I had on a white vestment. And the staff were there and they said, Are you a priest? And I said, Yes, I'm a priest. And then I started to walk down the aisle of the basilica and bishops wear little red beanies. And one guy said, my God, he's a bishop. <clears throat> he said, he'll probably turn into the Pope next. <clears throat> we wear those little red beanies. Not too long ago, I was over in St. Louis Park. St. Louis Park is, is, we have a parish over here. And a lot of our Jewish brothers and sisters live there. And after Mass, this little boy came up to me, shook my hand, and he ran over and just said, Mommy, he's Jewish. <laughs> the Jewish, um, they, they saw the yarmulke and they said, oh yes, the, the little boy. But then as I, I was living at the Basilica, and I used to help out at Branch 2. Branch 2 is a shelter that Catholic Charities runs downtown Minneapolis. We have three shelters for homeless people. <clears throat> and so I started to go over there three times a week. And I worked in the kitchen, made some of the sandwiches, dipped up the soup, and, and uh, <clears throat> helped the people and socialized. I learned a lot about poor people. I learned more than I ever would, I'm sure, in ministry. They didn't know I was a clergy person. I was just a volunteer there. And I'll never forget one day a man came up to me and said, Larry, I'm going to get evicted from my hotel. He lived in one of these old hotels downtown. And so I helped him out a little bit. And it was about three months later, I was again back at the Basilica on Easter Sunday morning. And I was pontificating. <clears throat> and I was coming out of the Basilica blessing all of God's people. And I had the big bishop's hat and the, the crozier, the staff, and greeting people. Very festive. And pretty soon as I get to the back of the church, there's this voice. Hey, Larry! <clears throat> And then the guy said, I didn't know you worked here. <laughs> I, I'm sure all the people in there wonder, who is this character? You know? <clears throat> Speaking to the bishop like that. I mean, oh, It was wonderful. I loved every moment of it <laughs> as I watched the expressions on people. <laughs> and so I, that was where I began 
my journey back to sobriety. And a lot of the things that I preached for so long, I preached about, suddenly I had to start living all that stuff, what I was preaching to others. And really, I must say with all honesty, that all the theology I learned in the seminary, all the theology books I've read, I really believe that my theology, my faith, my recovery, my understanding of God became much deeper and more real through the 12 steps. I find the 12 steps to be a tremendous theology and to really have been my salvation. And as I read the scriptures that I believe in, that I believe is my higher power, they come to life for me. And I have read so often that passage I read to you in the beginning, the crucifixion scene. And I preached about it all the time. But now when I hear it, I think I understand it. I think I understand it much better in terms of suffering. And I think for all of us, every one of us in our life, from time to time, all of us are going to be one of those men on the cross. All of us have some form of suffering. All of us have something we have to let go of. And I think we learn something by looking at those three men who were all suffering. People were taunting them, making fun of them. And suddenly one of these men who happened to be a thief, as the scripture tells us, suddenly began to notice that there was kind of a serenity. There was a kind of letting go that he saw in Jesus. A composure in the midst of pain and suffering that impressed him. But the other one, the other man, we don't know much about him. It seems like he died being bitter and hating and blaming everybody else. If you're God's son, get us down from this cross. And so we have two men here that are suffering equally. One somehow is able to surrender it. The other is not. And I think it's a story for all of us. It happens to all of us. One of the most difficult things for me to do in my recovery was in those initial, initial times of my alcoholism. To surrender and to admit that I was alcoholic. Yeah, God, you make me a priest and a bishop and now you make me an alcoholic. Thanks for nothing. It was hard. It was very hard. And yet I, I, I see in, in this story, uh, and it's become a meaningful one for me, that either we can hang and we can accept our cross, we can accept our illness, we can accept and surrender to it, or we can hate and we can blame others and live in that kind of pain. So I learned that very important lesson. And I learned that in, <clears throat> I learned as I read the scriptures, one of the great lessons I believe the higher power was telling me and should be telling all of us. The whole story of creation of the world and of the Bible is a story of surrender. And that's hard for us because we are a controlling people. We like to be in control. And I think there are certain kinds of people like 
doctors and lawyers and priests and clergy. And part of that is because people, we have been put up here. That was probably the hardest thing for me. What are people going to say? The bishop's an alcoholic. It was hard to think what people were going to say. That was painful to work through that. But I also discovered, and I'm sure you have too, because mine was so public. My alcoholism was very public because I'm a public figure. And so it was all over the press. Everybody knew about it. But I must say here and now, <clears throat> I never received, I never received in all of my ministry as much support and as much affirmation from people as I did after acknowledging my alcoholism. I had letters from people all over the world. I had people writing and telling me because you have acknowledged this that my husband or my wife or whatever was able to do something about their addiction. I really learned, as much as I feared the publicity, I learned that most people don't like perfect people. They can't relate to perfect people. But when I go around and give retreats and parishes and missions, I tell my story. And it's amazing how it's received by the people. Because everybody that's out there, everybody in those pews is struggling with some brokenness. Something. And so when we talk about it and I talk about it, I'm so grateful now. And in some ways, I, and I, I say this with great humility because I'm, I'm not sure, but I think this is one of the missions that God has for me in life. I really believe that I'm probably doing more as a bishop now in telling my story and talking about brokenness in other people's lives. I really believe that this is one of the missions I have in life now. I would have never dreamt of this in my early days of ministry, that this would be where I am now. But this is the impact that I've had, and it's the impact I've seen in people's lives. You know, one of the persons that I, I, I relate to very well these days, and I used to preach a lot about Paul. You know, Paul was one of the, the persons back in the time of Jesus, St. Paul. And uh, when I read St. Paul now, it's so different. A lot of people feel that, you know, the way St. Paul wrote, they say, he sounds like an alcoholic. He uses AA language, Paul does. You know, I, I, I would be careful not to say that in the presence of Rome or anybody like that. <clears throat> I would be accused to be a heretic for sure. But you listen to the language of this man. You listen to him. What, an, what a tremendous vision he had of power. This elusive thing we call power. This thing that so many of us want to have this power. And it's such an elusive thing. It's an illusion. But St. Paul wrote a letter to the people of Corinth. And, and listen to what he says. He said, as to the extraordinary revelation, in order that I might not become conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, an angel of Satan to beat me and keep me from getting proud. Three times I begged the Lord that this might leave me. And the Lord said to me, My grace is enough for you, for in weakness power reaches perfection. And so I willingly boast of my weaknesses, so that the power of God can rest on me. Therefore I'm content with weakness, with mistreatment, with distress, with persecutions and difficulties, for the sake of God. For when I am powerless, 
it's then that I am strong. Is that AA talk or not? <clears throat> That's St. Paul. And now when I read this, I understand what he was saying. And I hope and believe that all of you do too. When I am weak, I am strong. The Native American people, they, they have a way of, they make beautiful tapestries. And I was at one of their conventions not long ago. And they had a beautiful tapestry there. And, and up in the corner of it was something that looked totally out of place. A mistake. And so I asked one of the persons there and they said, oh no, the Native American people, whenever they create something like that, they always sow an imperfection into it to remind them that it's through their imperfection and their acknowledgement of imperfection they grow to perfection. How can I say power is a fantasy and we need to surrender? Power is an illusion. And I can say it because I've experienced powerlessness in my life. I admitted I was powerless over alcohol. And it was only when I experienced hopelessness and despair powerlessness was I able to give up the struggle and turn it over. And then and only then did I get the power over my disease. But that power I choose to believe did not come from me, but from God. As St. Paul says, it's all my brothers and sisters. As I move on in my life and recovery, I can stand here and say I am grateful to God to my higher power. I am grateful. And I believe that I am a better person because of AA. I believe that I am stronger. And I truly believe I can be more effective in my ministry. A religion. Religion can be attractive to a lot of people. It also attracts a lot of strange people. Religion does. And you know, I've discovered that religion, somebody said one time, religion is for people who fear hell. Spirituality is for people who've been there. <laughs> you think about it. When I was, when I was drinking as a bishop, I would go around all dressed up as a bishop. I looked religious. I said the mass. Left out a few things here and there probably. I looked religious, but I was not spiritual. One of the things I discovered is that alcoholism, any kind of an addiction, it robs us of our spiritual life. The first thing to go with any kind of addiction is our spiritual life, our spiritual values. And so I was functioning as a priest, but not with spiritual values. And it was becoming harder and harder to stand up and talk to people and preach and pray. Because I was hypocritical. Religion is a bridge to spirituality. And I say to all of us who practice religion, you gotta get across the bridge. Religion is a bridge to spiritual life. And I think sometimes we get stuck on the bridge. We get stuck just with religion. And that is not fulfilling. When I also read 
something that my higher power said, I identify with this too. Because Jesus said one time, whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will find it. And I think that sums up basically what I'm talking about. It's about surrender. It's not trying to find life in power, in alcohol, in sex, in food, in money. It's finding life in God. And whoever loses his life for God will find it. But whoever finds his life in these things will lose it. How well we know that and understand it. I would like my brothers and sisters just simply to conclude with a paradox. Life is filled with paradoxes. And I think my higher power reminded me of that so many times. There's a paradox right there. Whoever finds life loses it. Who loses it finds it. It's in giving you receive. It's in loving you're loved. It's in dying we're born to eternal life. Dying to something. Dying to alcoholism. Dying to addiction. To live for the higher power. In the conclusion of the story I read to you, the man we call Jesus returned in the room with his apostles. And one of them would not believe. And so Jesus said to him, Thomas, come up here. Put your finger in my hand. Put your hand in my side and stop your disbelief. And he did. And then he knelt and acknowledged, my Lord and my God. I really believe that Jesus Christ, who is my higher power, could have come back with a perfect body. But when he returned to his apostles, he still had the wounds in his body, in his hands and his side, from the nails. And I think that's a powerful lesson. And I think it's Jesus' way, it's God's way, it's my higher power way of telling us it's okay to be broken. The main thing is to acknowledge it, deal with it, and find your strength. I believe until we put our finger in our own wounds, we cannot really grow. But once we let go, we surrender, then we have a sense of peace. My brothers and sisters, I am grateful. I am grateful that I am an alcoholic. It has been life-saving for me. Not simply because I am alcoholic, but because the program of recovery has taught me how to live. And so I thank all of you. I thank you for the witness you give. And I hope that none of you underestimate the power of your witness. The power that you have to help other people. That's the real power. The power to help change lives. 
And there's nothing in this world, in my opinion, greater than that, than the power to help change other people's lives. And so I wish you all well when you go back home to wherever you're going, that you continue to pass it on, share, and help others experience now the peace and the joy that we experience. Thank you all very much. God bless you all.